we can uh, get started with our luncheon speaker. This is, a, this is an aspect of it which I am particularly excited uh, in having uh, Scott Siegel here to talk to us about the issues which are of uh, common concern to all of us, intense concern to some. Um, Scott Siegel is a partner at uh, – everyone got – we all here? We're all on board? It's hiding behind the podium. Scott Siegel is partner at Bracewell and Giuliani. Um, uh, and that's pretty big, at least as far as I'm concerned. But that's, that's only part of what, he, what, what Scott Siegel is. Scott Siegel is also head of the law firm's Policy Resolution Center. Um, and he works on environmental as well as energy issues, testifies on the Hill uh, frequently, on those kinds of questions, advises uh, clients on those issues. Uh, he is a person who knows the ways and byways of Capitol Hill, government agent, regulatory agencies, almost anything in which Washington uh, in the Washington establishment have a hand uh, or even a finger in energy policy. Scott Siegel uh, knows, knows which hand is which and, and which are the important fingers and which aren't. Yeah, that's a really complicated metaphor, but I'm going to work with it. I'm going to stick. And the ones to break as well. Um, so I, I asked Scott if he could come talk to us uh, over the lunchtime, get us set up for our afternoon session by talking a little bit about the f future fuel issues, those kinds of questions, and sort of what their situation and what the positioning is now in Washington as we approach a presidential election, as we approach uh, also congressional elections, uh, and answer some questions from you, I hope, and also from me, about just what the viability of this issue is, given the current state of Congress and the, and, and the current state of, of, of government here in, uh, here in D.C. So without further ado, Scott Siegel. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be with you uh, here today. I hope all of you have had an opportunity to get well through your lunch because I'm going to be talking about politics and it could ruin your appetite. So I, I just want to make sure. You know, it is true. The last time I uh, was going to make a presentation on alternative fuels, and, and some of you who know me in the audience know that I, I deal with a, a number of different uh, energy and environmental issues, as, as Arthur indicated. But the last time I was going to speak on alternative fuels, the gyrocopter landed on the uh, on the mall and caused quite a, a bit of a, a bit of a stir. Um, I, I wondered if there were some cosmic significance to that. Like, is the gyrocopter in fact an alternative fuel vehicle? <laughs> Maybe it is. Somebody told me they thought it might run on thinly sliced lamb, but that would be the hero copter, uh, not the gyrocopter. <laughs> right. Anyway, as Arthur said, my job here is to review some of the energy politics that are relevant to the subject matter, uh, talk about Congress and the administration a little bit. So let's get started with no further ado. There is a great deal of interest in fuels policy on Capitol Hill. That may come as a surprise to many of you. You may say, oh, no, 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 no. This is a long sleeping issue. There's never that much interest in it. And then every, uh, every presidential election year that rolls around, there's negative interest in it in the sense that anyone traveling to Iowa has to say something foolish or, or make a, a petty obeisance in the direction of, uh, of one particular strand of alternative fuel. Uh, and then from there, uh, everyone on Capitol Hill becomes a, a little disconcerted about touching that particular third rail. But I'll tell you that there is actually more interest in what the future of motor fuels policy will look like as time goes on. And that's for a couple of different reasons. The first one is uh, it really underscores one of the major points being made by this conference, which is we are in the midst of a revolution that has bestowed on the United States a measure of energy independence that we have not seen or even dreamed of for a long time. I needn't um, review all the facts of this with you because I know you're only too familiar with it. Uh, I would begin by saying that the United States is still about one-third dependent on imported crude petroleum, so that issue is not fully resolved by the shale revolution. 
But the issue that is fully resolved by the shale revolution is the meteoric increase in our natural gas production, a 53 percent increase in U.S. natural gas production since 2008, 3.5 million jobs created or supported by oil and gas development by the year 2035, trillions of dollars generated in private capital investment, as well as in tax revenues, state, local, federal, et cetera. So a great deal of interest in this. Um, of course, there is pushback on it, as we know. Some environmentalists fret that it constitutes a missed opportunity for renewable electric power production because it sort of crowds the space, when in fact, as those of us who follow this very closely know, a robust use of natural gas um, is also a way to back up renewable fuel when, renewal, when renewable electricity is used on a peak load basis, trusty old natural gas is available in the way that coal was for uh, baseload power. So there's, a, 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 there's a, a combination of resources moving forward here. There's a great deal of discussion about how that natural gas impacts our electric generation fleet, but not nearly enough discussion about how that natural gas might impact alternative fuels as time goes on. But we're going to have to learn to think a little more creatively, and I think there are people on, uh, uh, on Capitol Hill who are interested in stimulating and getting the most out of uh, natural gas production from shale who are interested in what impact that can have on uh, motor fuels. Another important congressional development, uh, and one that warms the my registered lobbyist heart is that we are slowly returning to regular order in the United States Congress. This was a, a specific promise that was made by the now uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, were he reelected, he would restore regular order. And just to remind everybody of the shift that occurred in the last uh, congressional election, 45, 55 Democrats to 45 Republicans before the election, uh, 46 to 54 afterwards uh, in the reverse order, still six votes short of the magic number needed to invoke cloture and 13 votes short of the very, very magic number, the uh, override number or the so-called veto-proof majority. But what that means is the Senate Majority Leader uh, and team can at least fix the procedural issues. And you may say, well, has he done so, and indeed he has, and it's been reflected in energy policy debates. First thing out of the box, I'm sure everybody knows, was the debate on Keystone XL. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of two anecdotes that come from the debate on Keystone XL in front of the U.S. Congress, which show you that we're returning to regular order. The first, the Congressional Research Service had to conduct emergency sessions with congressional staffers who had lost the ability to advise their bosses on how to offer an amendment because for three years they had not been allowed to offer an amendment. And secondly, uh, an anecdote that I heard directly from Senator Murkowski, now the chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, she said, so Senator Cantwell, the new ranking minority member, walks up to me and says, how many amendments, you said regular order, how many amendments are you going to let us have? And Murkowski says, no, I said regular order. That means you can offer as many amendments as you want. She goes, okay, okay, okay. And Cantwell goes and huddles with Chuck Schumer. And they both come back a second later and they say, okay, but what is the number of amendments <laughs> that we'll be able to have? And uh, Murkowski said, I think you don't, I think you're misunderstanding my point here. You can have as many amendments as you want. And it took, according to Murkowski, three or four of those iterations before Cantwell went, I get it, I get it. If I have an amendment, I can offer it just like in the United States Senate, right? And so we, we went off along our way. And we've seen a great, and what has that meant? Well, for those who do what I do, which is try and count noses in the policymaking process, it meant that maybe not all things were possible, but at least some things were possible, which was a break with the recent past. So it was good to see. And by the way, I don't mean this to be considered a partisan remark. It's not necessarily. There were plenty of Democrats that are members of the United States Senate who were only too happy to be able to offer amendments. It seems so novel. I mean, consider uh, just prior to the last election. Let's say you were Mark Begich and you were running for re-election in Alaska. Your value proposition is that 
while you are a Democrat and while the state is bright red, you could push off a little bit against your leadership and you could advance the prerogatives of the state of Alaska. But what really happened? You weren't allowed to offer a single amendment or introduce a single bill. Well, you can introduce a bill. Can't keep you from doing that. But, uh, but you weren't allowed to bring a bill forward to the floor. So then how did you describe that value proposition as you're tootling about Alaska? I had some spirited conversations behind closed doors that I wasn't allowed to share with you. That does not sound like a value proposition. So even for Democrats, it's a nice time, uh, a nicer time to be in uh, the United States Senate. And, sec and lastly, another reason why I think more things are possible from an energy perspective is the administration has created a very useful foil on energy policy. The, you know, the administration promised that they would use their executive authority to advance as much and as, as much as I can do under, uh, as long as my hand will sign executive orders, I'm paraphrasing the president, of course. Um, and, and so we've had a raft of, uh, of, of regulatory developments, and I needn't go through the whole list. The highlights might include the Clean Power Plan, which is the sort of first ever use of a particular provision of the Clean Air Act for this purpose, a roving mandate to do good hallucinated by the EPA. But aside from that, there's a far more in the energy space that's come through and has caused a little angst in Congress. There are no less than 20 new energy efficiency standards being advanced virtually simultaneously by the United States Department of Energy. Okay, it's one thing for Secretary Moniz to speak at length about how we ought to revisualize energy policy moving forward, as he did in the Quadrennial Energy Review. But it's another thing, you know, regulations they have real enforcement. They cost real money. They, they change markets. And there are a, a 20 of them that are currently uh, ready to go at the Department of Energy or near ready to go. Uh, why all of this use, this, this, this over-the-top use of executive authority? Well, as the old movie says, and by that I mean Casablanca, we'll always have Paris. And as you know, in December of this year, we all come to the... Uh, the UN Climate Change Convention, the next iteration of which will be in Paris, and uh, the administration wants to make sure that it will definitely be a show. And in order for it to be a show, they're not relying on friendly legislation in the United States Congress. They're relying on as much as they can do under executive authority. By the way, I'm going to allow myself a little aside. My colleague Jeff Homestead's at the back of the room. He'll appreciate this. Uh, you know that in both the uh, joint press release the United States issued with China. It's sometimes called an agreement, but it's actually a joint press release with China. And in the papers the United States has already filed recently with the UN indicating the direction it's going to go, the United States promised reductions of 26 to 28 percent uh, in our CO2 emissions, or greenhouse gas emissions. But if you take the full implementation of the Clean Power Plan and all the other various promises made, under the Climate Action Plan, and you add them together, assume full implementation, for good measure, escalate them a little bit, assume a new generation of CAFE standards. You know, the, we're at the end of, of CAFE now, new generation of CAFE standards. Assume that. Add it all up, it still adds up to, to about 19%. Now, where's the extra third of the carbon reductions come from that have been promised? This is a question that needs to be answered by the administration. The administration says, They've done a complex back-of-the-envelope analysis that let them know that everything that's on the list to be executive authority adds up to 28 percent. I, uh, I don't see it. If there is such an analysis, we'd all sure like to see it. I'll let you in on a little secret. If they really were to get to 28 percent, I wouldn't want to be in the agriculture business because that's where the remaining tons of CO2 really are. And if they do that... Um, let's just say it becomes an entirely different ballgame in the United States Congress to assert oversight over that executive authority. So what is Congress thinking and doing about energy? Well, there is specifically targeted legislation out there that deals with carbon and, and, the, and turning back or at least exerting oversight over a lot of the administration initiatives. Uh, but mostly Congress is captivated by questions of infrastructure, uh, permitting, siting, and the like, uh, for both natural gas pipelines and modernizing the electric grid. And so in the House of Representatives, we see a, uh, I love this phrase, the architecture of abundance, which is a, a series of bills that they hope to bring together, that they hope to do on a highly bipartisan basis. And it helps, by the way, that some of the architecture of abundance litigation that's been suggested in the House Energy and Commerce Committee actually is very similar to things that have been suggested by the Quadrennial Energy Review coming out of the administration. So there is some opportunity there. 
modernizing infrastructure, which includes modernizing the pipeline distribution system. That's important for those of us who want to use natural gas for its highest and best use, including in motor fuels. We still have to get natural gas to where it needs to go in the fuel distribution system. Modernizing a 21st century workforce, uh, making sure that our workforce is both diverse and strong for working in energy. Energy diplomacy for a changing world, another, another major element. Some of you know this as crude exports. Some of you know this as natural gas exports. Some of you know this as the KXL pipeline, but these are all parts of our energy diplomacy. And lastly, efficiency and accountability of executive agencies. And uh, efficiency means, in both sense of the terms, how efficient are the agencies and also the use of the low-hanging fruit of carbon reductions, which is enhancing energy efficiency. Senator Murkowski, we're in a a great time. What are we all doing here on a Thursday when Friday is the deadline to submit all ideas to go into the Murkowski uh, energy bill? And indeed, there's a lot of discussion about that, certainly a lot of focus on pipelines uh, and, and some of the uh, Senator's own favorite issues like the export of hydrocarbons. But I doubt that is necessarily part of the bill so much as it is something that, uh, that there will be a, a great deal of discussion about. Markup on the Senate side will be after the Memorial Day recess. They hope to have something out of committee by the August recess, and so that will be good to see. Uh, they want to reform permitting. They want uh, to address siting constraints and the like. Very good. These proposals, by the way, do show an interesting direction in the form of bipartisanship. You know, everybody, it's, hey, ladies and gentlemen, it is easy to propose an energy bill in this, con in this Congress. And it is even, under current situations, easy to pass it out of the Congress. To pass it on a bipartisan basis where it would be signed by the President, that's more difficult. And it takes real leadership to get that done. Let me give you an example of where I think we are seeing heightened bipartisanship in energy legislation. Pipelines. Last year, there was energy pipeline legislation that was passed out of the House of Representatives, for example. And what it basically said, I'm way oversimplifying here, but what, what it basically said is, FERC is on a time limit for approving a, uh, a permit. If they fail to approve it within X time limit, then in 30 days it's deemed approved. Okay? Now, this question of de automatic approval is always highly controversial, and it usually does fall along party lines. A lot of Democratic members who believe in the splendor of government will tell you automatic anything from the government is anathema and that uh, they need to take their own sweet time. The President has said this with respect to Keystone XL. You know what the president said about Keystone XL is that there's a definitive process here that is, it's, it's just, it's, it's almost like the Code of Hammurabi, it's the Magna Carta, it's the provision that we, the State Department must have as much time as it needs to review the pipeline. I will tell you, no joke, two decades ago, I worked on a presidential permit for a pipeline that crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. We didn't even know what it was. So we, well, we knew what the U.S.-Mexico border was, but we didn't know what the... Uh, presidential permit was. So we looked it up. We called the State Department and we said, what do we need to do? They said, fill out this form. We filled out the form. Two weeks later, we had a presidential permit. No joke. So this hallowed, principled process that has always taken, you know, geological time in order to make an approval, something made up, uh, I, I, will, I would have to aver for the recent circumstances. Okay. So the, bi so the consensus that existed to pass legislation that had automatic approval in it, very partisan consensus. Those bills have both been recently reintroduced, including just yesterday by Shelley Moore Capito and, uh, and Dr. Cassidy. Their new bill does not any longer contain automatic approval if the FERC doesn't take as long as, it, as they would need to take. Instead, it goes to something called a conflict resolution process, which rather sounds like marriage counseling for pipelines. But in any event, it is not automatic approval. And as a result, I expect far more Democratic support. The only thing the President said in his veto uh, statement of administration principle, his veto message, with respect to the legislation last year was, I don't like automatic approval because it violates the hallowed principle of screwing around with pipelines. All right? So this is, a, in my judgment, is an indication of where, as a general proposition, Congress is going. The administration, for its own part, would also like to see actual legislation on, on, uh, on energy issues, not necessarily on climate change. They're having way too much fun on, on uh, regulatory authority there. But they would like to see some things adopted, particularly in the infrastructure area. And we need no look no further than the 348-page QER, or Quadrennial Energy Review, that was released just last month. It 
attempts to assess the effect of the boom we've had in oil and gas development and talks at great length about how at great length and at great length about how to move it about how to move it around and what changes are needed for pipelines although in all of that discussion it only makes one almost footnote mention of, of Keystone which I think is kind of funny I mean if you if somebody said write a term paper which the QER sort of is on pipelines and then you didn't mention Keystone it would look a little weird but that's okay they're, they're allowed to look a little weird um, next phase of Keystone will, I think, address, I'm sorry, boy, I got that on my head, huh? Next phase of the, of the quadrennial energy review will look, I think, a little more closely at issues related to, to climate change and the regulatory response to climate change. In fact, Sec Secretary Moniz gave a rather interesting statement a couple of days ago. He said, I think that the guideline or the guideposting for the next iteration of the of quadrennial energy review will be those issues around the structure and implementation of the clean power plan. So these questions of what actually reduces CO2 and what is helpful from a GHG perspective should animate the next version. Now, he may not be around to actually make that prediction come true, because even if Ernie Moniz got everything he wanted in the next QER, um, the timing would mean that the document would be released in October of 2016. That's if it went exactly on time, it would be released in October of 2016. I assume everyone knows what happens in November of 2016. So that's awful. Uh, that's pretty close to brinksmanship as far as I'm concerned. All right. Well, how about motor fuels? We've talked about interest in Congress generally about energy. What about motor fuels? Well, let's just review the bidding of where we are right now. We have a little thing called the Renewable Fuel Standard. And while I understand um, I come here neither to bury the RFS nor to praise it. Uh, if you are going to talk about motor fuels policy in the U.S. today and alternative fuels policy, you have to sort of begin the analysis with the RFS. And I, I began a lot of my career dealing with the RFS. I'm regarded in some circles as the Thomas Jefferson of the MTBE safe harbor. Of course, it was never adopted, so I wasn't much of a Thomas Jefferson, I guess. But with respect to the RFS generally, remember, uh, it escalates to 36 billion gallons by the year 2022. It is incredibly complicated right now. It's like an overlapping set of Venn diagrams about how each gallon counts, whether it is advanced, whether it is cellulosic, and whether it is starch-based ethanol. Um, the RFS proceeds by virtue of stepwise increases in absolute volumes each year. And the one thing that the founding fathers of the RFS and mothers never expected was that the actual consumption or the size of the fuel pool in the United States would begin to decline. They didn't read all of their own press releases that came out with CAFE and, uh, and came out in favor of electric vehicles and the like to realize that the size of the, of the, the gasoline motor fuel of the, of the fuel pool is actually decreasing. Well, that obviously is an inconsistent stimuli with the notion of increasing the RFS by means of absolute volumes. If it went up by percentages of that fuel pool, then it could ride the waves, essentially, of the size of the fuel pool, but it can't do that. And as a result, we have all the discussion herein of the blend wall, uh, whether or not we are exceeding 10% by volume of, of the pool. And I'm not here to talk about that in great detail because that would occupy more your lunchtime and your dinner time, and we don't want to do that. But suffice to say that that, con that, that, that source of conflict between this volume-based steady increase in the RFS on the one hand and the fear of the blend wall on the other hand has produced some interest in legislative reform of the renewable fuel standard. And it is out there. Don't let anybody tell you it is not. Among the issues that are under consideration are codification of the methodology of how we set the renewable volume obligation. The RVO, the renewable volume obligation, is that annualized amount of ethanol, uh, I'm sorry, alternative fuel, that must be consumed. And there's a great degree of disagreement about what the methodology should be to determine the RVO. You're seeing some of that right now, right here in River City, uh, over at the Office of Management and Budget, because as everybody, I'm sure, saw yesterday, maybe it was today, maybe it was at the wee hours, who knows, 
the, the elves at the uh, EPA's uh, Transportation and Air Quality Division delivered to the elves at the Office of Management and Budget uh, the actual 2014, 2015, and 2016 renewable volume obligations. You may say to yourself, wait a tick. I looked at my wristwatch on the way in. It's 2015. How did they just deliver the 2014 obligation? That's a bit of a trick, isn't it? Is it through the use of the patented EPA time machine? No. It is a mere reflection of just how broken the renewable fuel standard really is. That here we stand after that entire calendar year is over. And when was the 2015 number to have been delivered? Well, that would have been by November 30th of 2014, by a little thing we like to call the statute. All right? So that's two of the three numbers being delivered today are months and months or years out of date. Now, that's okay. EPA has agreed that they will. We don't know what's in the proposal, actually, but we believe that EPA will limit itself to actual reality on the ground with respect to 2014, which is very, really very generous of them to do. The reason I bring all that up is it shows whether you love the RFS because you cannot sell enough corn in the United States or whether you hate the RFS because you think it's an intrusion in the marketplace, there's something wrong with the RFS. It shouldn't take that long. And I needn't also point out the tremendous gyrations that we have seen in the market for renewable identification numbers, or RINs, which are the pieces of paper that stand in place of actual gallons of ethanol. Uh, I have read the preamble of the original expanded RFS from 2007, and it was very clear. You know what it said? These will cost about a penny. And now RINs prices have gone anywhere from 75 cents, a buck 20, you know, et cetera. And you wonder to yourself, as every stimuli is bringing down the price of gasoline, there's only one that is really stubborn, and that's the price of the RINs. Yes, it fluctuates, but it is, out, it is completely uh, out of step with the other stimuli that affect the price of gasoline. So if you still have any love in your heart for cheap motor fuel in this country, fixing the program, maybe not ending it, but fixing it, should be high on your list. Well, okay. What... At the end of the day, what does this mean? It means, uh, and there are other parts of the, uh, people are considering sunsets of the RFS program, don't they always? They're considering changes either by regulation or by legislation of something called the obligated party. Remember that under the Act, the, uh, well, no, it's actually under the Act, under EPA's interpretation of the Act, the obligated party, the one that has to have the RIN in hand to show they have complied with the RFS is the uh, petroleum refiner. But it is, the, it is the blender which actually generates the RIN. Sometimes that's the same person. Sometimes it's not. And when it is not, you can have a lot of gaming of the market. So one concept, since blenders like blending so much, one concept would be to blend the obligation to uh, have a renewable identification number between the refiner and the blender so that there's less opportunity to game the system. But those are all possibilities. In fact, EPA might even take comment on that latter point. And if they do, I think that will be very significant. If they don't, I think it will be a missed opportunity. So how do we get more natural gas into the mix? Well, natural gas is already into the mix if you think about it. Refiners across the United States are made more robust and more competitive by the fruits of the shale gas revolution. That's true for East Coast refiners, for example, from shale oil traveling from the Midwest by hook or by crook as it does now. Uh, and that access to greater volume is helpful to those refineries. It is also true of natural gas because uh, our refiners, for example, on the Texas Gulf Coast benefit from natural gas liquids and are more competitive as a result of having access to those NGLs. That's true for fuels they produce with the NGLs being feedstock for fuel production. It's also true of parallel petrochemical production that they have, making for the first time in a long time these large Gulf Coast refiners competitive with refineries overseas. So it's all a good story. And it is a reflection of natural gas's impact on the stability of the refining market. In addition, some natural gas liquids in the form, or rather I should say compressed natural gas, are continuing to power fleet vehicles as they had. 
as they have. Natural gas now powers some 140,000 vehicles in the U.S., and I know you're going to hear more about that a little bit later. Maybe you heard about it earlier today, too. 15.2 uh, million CNG vehicles worldwide. There are 1,200 CNG fueling stations in the United States. So the direct use is working well. There's been a lot more discussion of stimulated methanol capacity as well as a result of lower-cost natural gas feedstocks, and I'm sure Greg will cover that in some detail. And uh, from a retail perspective, people are considering innovative ways to get more fuels out there. And I know uh, my friend John Eichberger, who's looking at us, Blackberry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, you're probably fact-checking something I said. Uh, it will also talk about retail perspective. But I want to talk to you a little bit about other ways to get the largesse of natural gas into our motor fuel pool. I'll let you learn a little secret. Natural gas does not make us energy independent if all it impacts is electric power production. We are not importing electricity into the United States. Electric supertankers are not having spills of electricity as they come to United States shores. If we want natural gas to really play a double duty in enhancing the energy security of the United States, we need it to impact our motor fuel pool, and there are ways to do it. But we have to think more creatively than we're used to thinking in the context of the renewable fuel standard. The renewable fuel standard says this to you. I say alternative fuel, you say corn. Maybe you say corn plus advanced biofuels. That'd be awesome if you'd say that, but frequently you don't say that. You say corn, all right? Mm -hmm. We need to think more broadly than that. We need to think that we have many feedstocks in the United States that could be the basis of alternative fuels. And the most obvious of those is the one that's really jam-packed full of energy, and that would be natural gas. That particular hydrocarbon molecule can be converted relatively easily to alcohol fuels. And the interesting part about augmenting our existing fuel pool, not trying to replace it entirely, but augmenting it with alcohol fuels from natural gas, is that we can use our existing infrastructure for that. We can use our existing distribution infrastructure, and we can almost use our existing automotive infrastructure, too. With small changes, even existing vehicles can be made to, as you, as you well know, this is not rocket science, can be made to utilize higher blends of alcohol fuels. And we have a motor fuel input now in the form of the natural gas revolution that puts people to work at the front end in bringing that natural gas to market and puts people to work at the back end with, you know, 100% USDA, well, I can't say USDA, grade A union workers at, uh, uh, in the fuels complex that are able to then convert that, uh, that, hard, that hydrocarbon to alcohol fuels. As in terms of policy initiatives to get it done, there are lots of things that can be done. Uh, there are, but, the, but it all begins with recognizing that we have additional largesse for motor fuels at our disposal. I noticed that just yesterday, Dr. Cassidy uh, did something that was playing counter to type. You know, I remember Dr. Cassidy a couple of, year, uh, a couple of months ago uh, getting all up in uh, Ernie Moniz's grill about uh, the Tesla loan. Uh, under the uh, advanced uh, technology loan at the, uh, at the Energy Department. But here he says, you know what? If we could actually encourage the Department of Energy to think more creatively about its use of these alternative loans, we could maybe shake loose some new applicants. We could maybe uh, bring into the fold commercial trucks and more to the point vessels, uh, marine-going vessels, to use alternative fuels. I love this idea, ladies and gentlemen. Cassidy's from Louisiana. The vessels he's talking about are the ones that service what? Oil and gas production in the Gulf of Mexico. Wouldn't it be interesting to have more penetration of alternative fuel use in those types of vessels, too? He is now supportive of that in the context of DOE loan guarantee programs. Of course, he doesn't want to give the programs any more money. He just wants to let the DOE know that it's okay for them to make loans of that sort uh, and, uh, and that that will broaden the base of support for the program generally. Um, so... Use of natural gas resources as a source directly through alcohol fuels or as a clean feedstock for other motor fuels is another way to make domestic natural gas, like the gas we derive from shale oil, improve it, gain more, economic, uh, gain more economically from it, and really enhance energy security. It's another way to harness that bounty and put it to work for, shale, for uh, a bright future for U.S. energy policy. 
And can it all be done as we approach a presidential election year? This is the part I promised Arthur I would talk. I would, I'll end on this. So I'm thumbing th at this time of year, every four years, I always start reading the Des Moines Register again. Ike Berger, I'm sure you read the Des Moines Register every day, but, uh, but I start reading it again this time of year. And I had to note from today's Des Moines Register, listen to this. Did you all see this? Did everybody read the Des Moines Register today? I hope you did. They do take a rather morbid interest in alternative fuels out in Des Moines. I don't know, I don't know why. In his first trip to Iowa as an official presidential candidate, Republican Ben Carson waded into the shark-infested ethanol issue up to his neck and did a leisurely lap around the climate change pool. Asked about the renewable fuel standard during a Des Moines stop, Carson joked, what's that? <laughs> I don't particularly like the idea of government subsidies for anything because it interferes with the natural free market. And in saying that, he sounded exactly like every other GOP candidate that goes out there. He then took a sharp turn away from the pack. Therefore, I would probably be in favor of taking that $4 billion a year we spend on oil subsidies. P.S. I never know what's on that list. I think my bills are on that list. $4 billion a year we spend on oil subsidies and using that in new fueling stations for 30% ethanol blends. And in, in, in the context of my speech, you could say 30% alcohol blends, and I'd be just as happy. Now, you may say, that's Siegel, that's Ben Carson, for God's sakes. He's not going to be president of the United States. But I want to use it to illustrate two points. The first is, don't think that 2016 means you can't pass fuels legislation. Not only do I think that that is historically inaccurate, but what do we do every four years? We talk about alternative fuels again, don't we? For the very reason of the, to use the mother tongue, the Fakakta Iowa caucuses out there. And those of you who know what that word means, you know what it means. It's not a bad word. Crazy is loose translation. So we at least talk about it. And when you talk about it, there's an opportunity for reform and for change. And the second point I make, Ben Carson is ahead of the former governor of Texas and the current governor of Louisiana in recent polling in Iowa. I'm not going to say he's going to win, but Iowa has a reputation for picking strange people. So on that note, I'm going to turn it back over to Arthur or take some of your questions. And I'm happy to talk about you know, any political issue or energy policy issue you want, or to talk about fuels. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to just take questions direct. Sir. I'm David Funk, also with Tesoro Biofuse. So if natural gas replaces uh, a significant part of gasoline, is that processed in the refinery, or what does the refinery do when it loses a third of its capacity utilization? Well, so your question is this. What happens to a refinery if, if a third of capacity were to go? Uh, I will be candid. It's not pretty, and I'll be candid with you. It would take some time, but let me let you in on a little secret. Particularly for integrated oil companies, <clears throat> refineries are only a part of the puzzle that the integrated uh, refinery undertakes. Re the modern refining company, and here I mean even the independent refiner, is in the business of delivering fuel to market. And my suspicion is this. It's a crazy suspicion. But my suspicion is this, that if that is the direction the fuel pool goes, the well-heeled, modern refining company will move in that direction as well. And let me give you a little example. Corn ethanol. Third largest corn ethanol manufacturer in the United States. Who is that? Valero. And uh, Coke's probably fourth. All right? So you see the point, that they will ride to the sound of the guns, and they'll do so effectively. And you know what else? They're in the best position to do so. Oh, and by the way, Nothing happens for free in this good life of ours, and it could be that if we diversify the definition of what constitutes a useful alternative fuel under the RFS program so that we allow natural gas fuels to play in the same context that biofuels play, we might find interesting bedfellows for the political support for a program like that.
Anyone else? That was a good question. A hard one, too. <laughs> All right. Eichberger, you have a question? No? No. All right. Okay. All right. And Arthur, no questions is perfectly fine with me. I'm okay with that. Um, here's, my, here's my question I'm going to pose to you. Mm -hmm. And that is, we're talking, go back, revisit the presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. Scenario. Yeah, thank you. Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow, Hudson Institute. Um, go, re revisit the presidential scenario. Mm -hmm. How do you see this uh, shaking out from the point of view of, let's say, uh, not, not just in terms of renewable fuels, mm -hmm. but also in terms of a larger, broader energy policy? Mm -hmm. um, I've had discussions with people who have expressed great how should I put this consternation that there is no sort of national energy policy. We right. seem to be rather adrift. Mm -hmm. There are certain advantages of that with regard to the way in which the shale revolution has taken place with a certain degree of, should we say, permissionless innovation from a federal mm -hmm. standpoint. Pretty much permissionless, not at a state level. But the degree to which um, a candidate would be able to, let's say, seize upon renewable fuels and make that his his standard that he carries across the barricades, mm -hmm. or is it the case that this is something that would be included in a mix of pro proposals, whether it's rolling back the EPA's um, uh, standards with regard to coal-fired plants, or whether mm -hmm. it's regard, I'm thinking on the Republican side, right. or thinking about oil exports and the range of other kinds of things. How would this fit into the mix from the point of view of its appeal on the Hill or its broader appeal in, in, in a Washington environment? Well, from a legislative context, I think there's actually a relatively clear answer, which is the renewable fuels standard and the legislation that set it up has never traveled alone. Okay? It's always been a section, first of the 2005 energy bill, uh, then of the 2007 energy bill. And in fact, the very first time we saw it as a matter of national policy is the only time it traveled alone, which was, as and see if everybody remembers this one, when it was um, the renewable energy standard that was on, um, that was proposed under the Clean Air Act by uh, a newly elected President Clinton. And it made it to the floor of the, uh, this was a regulatory, asserted regulatory authority. And a appropriations rider to cancel it made it to the floor of the U.S. Senate. And does anybody remember what the vote was on it? It shows you how, I bet, yeah, John might, but the vote was 50 to 51. There were two votes in the first, uh, in the first uh, Clinton term that were 50 to 51. One was to save his budget, and the other was to save the renewable fuel standard. And it's, uh, it's interesting because Al Gore obviously would have been the 51st vote, and he was, giving, he was on a state visit to Poland, and they had to bring him back early to save the renewable fuel standard. So you may wonder what happened to the renewable, that renewable fuel standard was later canceled uh, in a federal court case, NPRA versus the uh, NPRA versus EPA. And um, yeah, that's one of those few, it's one of those rare birds, uh, an industry victory in the D.C. Circuit. <laughs> but um, but uh, that was the actually only time I ever saw it travel alone. That was under administrative authority, and it, it ended badly. So when they actually tried to, to reinvigorate it with legislative authority, it was one part of a much larger energy bill, but a consequential part, but still only a part of a bill. And that's probably the way it would work this time around. The, the question, Arthur, about what to do about Iowa politics is a, is a different question. And, and here, look, if I change the definition at the front end, okay, this is why a refiner, and I have an abundance of confidence in refiners, all right, but if a refiner wanted to be supportive of something like this, they would say, geez, I need more flexibility in the definition of what constitutes a renewable fuel uh, or, a, or an alternative fuel, okay? And they'd have to say, look, if I'm going to take alcohol fuels, I need to get some relief from more restrictive standards that exist at the same time. And so then the question becomes, the economic recovery of the United States, you can make a case for this is related in great part to the job growth and CapEx investments made 
by the shale revolution in various and key states around the country. And so the folks that are supportive of expanding the penetration of alcohol fuels into the market have to say, this is what we bring to the table. What does the current restrictive definition of alternative fuel bring to the table? It's a good question. That's the per now, that doesn't win you Iowa, I don't think. I don't think I can think of a way that wins you Iowa. The way this issue has to be parsed in Iowa has to go something like this. There's something wrong with current alternative fuels policy. When you're sitting in 2015, and they haven't released 2014 numbers yet, and the 2015 numbers are six months late, something's wrong. This program is not working. And so as political leaders have said about other topics, you may remember this phrase, mend it, don't end it, you have to turn to the people who support biofuels, who I would also include the advanced biofuels industry, who also agrees that the statute itself must be reformed and say there's a statute out there, there's a, a set of changes out there that will preserve the footprint of this program, not in its entirety, but in a way that is sustainable. Look, when you've lost your environmentalist support, how many environmental groups support the current RFS? None. None that have a national reputation at least, you know? So, They've lost the key bases. If you want to save the program, you have to amend the program. That would be the play in Iowa. But it takes a very sophisticated member or, or someone with a lot of knowledge to make that play. And it would be hard. Yep. Okay, take that now another step. Yep. If you looked at part of what drove the RFS, it was the hope of cellulosic ethanol. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. A bunch of people who thought they would make money out of mm -hmm. it. If you look at what drives, drove, the passage of corn ethanol into our system. It was people who thought they make money at it. Yeah. Right now we're looking at two to three hundred billion dollars of imported oil and a bunch of cats and dogs sitting in this room who think that the world can the US can grab some of that two to three hundred billion dollars and put it into a fuel system through other means. Mm -hmm. It sounds like natural gas to liquids or mm -hmm. some version or of something. that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see anyone going after the two, three hundred billion dollars sitting in this room saying, I want that money. Mm -hmm. I'm going to help push that. Mm -hmm. Where are the refiners who want to go do that? Where are the car companies who want to sell higher compression cars? Where are, is Selenese who wants to sell methanol? Right. Where, where are the Walmarts who want to sell lower cost fuel and bring more people? If, if all this is true, somebody has to want to do it for an, an economic point of view or right. somebody wants, needs to be a political leader like mm -hmm. Clinton was to begin with when you said the original right. RFS. Right. You need a political leader driving it or you need business wanting to for economic purposes intensively. How, where, where is that? How do you get that? Well, it, there's no doubt there needs to be, boy, and, and you can quote me on this, there needs to be more bravery among our political leaders. In other words, it's not really a matter of actual legislation. I'm not before you today saying I got a bill and boy, you should sign onto this bill because I don't. But, Paul has one in Congress. Yeah, well, that's right. There are others that do, but it takes, it takes some actual political leadership to, to make it come through. The second thing is it takes creative thinking to get beyond the current structure of our alternative fuels policy. And let me, let me read you a quote here. We need to make some fixes to the statute itself so we can have more certainty for our sector so that banks will loan the money to build these new innovative plants. Well, that is Mike McAdams from the Advanced Biofuels Association, right? But it could just as easily be other folks in this room making the same argument. We have to loosen Houdini-like the straitjacket of current policy in order to allow room for existing investments and a signal to financial institutions that it's okay to loan money. And I, I, that's what Mike says. You know, that's why don't let it be said that there's no room for biofuel-derived alternative fuels to also benefit from a change in existing policy. But, but what you're saying is that government institutions have to change to send a market signal mm -hmm. to a market who's looking at a $200 billion market opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be. What you're saying is it's ridiculous because that, that shouldn't be the case. We ought to be able to roll up our sleeves. And I agree. I agree with that. Where is industry? Well, we have, an un, we have an unhappy tradition in the fuel market. You know, one of the things Arthur said is there's no national energy policy. The only challenge I give back to you, Arthur, is there is. It's called the Clean Air Act, right? 
There's no national energy policy that's administered by the Energy Department, that's for sure. But there is a restrictive policy that picks winners and losers among fuels. So it takes two things. It takes action in the marketplace, but it also takes a desire on the part of policymakers to be a little bit more open uh, in the way they interpret or legislate in the area. You know? But you're right. It ought, in a perfect world, people would ride at the sound of the guns. Yeah. All right, Scott, I do have a question. John Eichberg with the convenience stores. So the time I've known you, whenever there's been a big discussion on fuels policy, national energy policy, renewable fuels standard, you're either at the table or lurking somewhere in the shadows. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to give us your opinion. Mm. What might happen? Now, most people believe we only have about two months left of legislative activity right. before the elections take over. Mm -hmm. Can anything happen? And if so, what could happen? Not what should, but what could happen? Well, from a legislative perspective, look, Shelley Capito introduces a pipeline bill yesterday, or um, is that her pipe bill she said this about? Ah, I can't remember. Anyway, even the narrow gauge legislation that's been introduced or talked about in the run-up to putting together a Senate energy bill, every, it seems like everybody who introduces their bill says, I know it's going to be hard to get this done. We don't have any time. It's not a high priority, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'd be a fool if I suggested that we could get the legislative process to actually work, maybe period, but certainly in the next couple of months. Okay, so what I'm really talking about here and calling for is more discussion of these issues, more jawboning, and not an overwhelming fear of the 2016 presidential race as a reason not to talk about fuels policy. Because I think you can have a principled discussion of fuel policy even as you're running into a presidential election year. I think you can do that. Uh, we have done it in the past, and I think you can do it in this case too. And here's, by the way. For those who think it's, an, it's a crumble-proof edifice of ex the existing policy is, remember, we've changed our policy with respect to tariffs. We've, checked, we've, changed our, our, uh, we've changed the structure of the way the highway fund works, and all in ways that made the renewable fuels sector a little bit nervous at the get-go. Things are a little different now. Also, one of the signal reasons why we adopted the renewable fuels program was not environmental protection. It was... It was, in a sense, what we, today we like to call energy security, but it was an argument that we ought to be more dependent on domestic sources of energy and less dependent on sources of fuel that are proffered by those who don't share U.S. foreign policy interests. This was really one of the critical selling points for the RFS in 05 and 07. Well, that argument is weak now, or is much weaker, is much weaker now. We're still 30 percent dependent on imported oil. That's true. But we have another resource that's on the scene that was not on the scene in five and seven, which is shale natural gas as, as a potential feedstock. So, and by the way, we did use natural gas supplies in a rather significant way in our feedstocks uh, at the beginning of the implementation of the renewable fuel program. And you may recall, it was a, a four-initialed fuel additive which I've already mentioned once in this speech, and I shall not mention again. Okay. Anything else? Thank you. You've been a, a, a very well-informed audience. I hope I have not subtracted from the knowledge base you walked in with. <laughs> Thank you.